0: Job chapter 32. Today we meet a new character in Job's story. And he speaks for the next six chapters without interruption. His name is Elihu. And in this book he serves a number of functions, important functions I would say. First of all he is a challenge to Job's self-righteousness. Job's declaration of his innocence is so audacious and final that his comforters, his three friends, are left speechless. They can't answer. It is as though Job and the three friends are waiting for God to speak up, but God remains silent. And it is at this point that Elihu speaks up, he takes advantage of the silence, and he asks for permission to address Job. And he is convinced that he can, in fact, instruct Job, even when the other three men have failed to do so. The second function, as mentioned by one commentator, is that Elihu is sort of comic relief. His wordy, overly apologetic style stands in stark contrast to the atmosphere created by Job's oath of innocence. As one writer put it, he blusters onto the stage, and one respect, it as rather like a comic turn, for he manages to spend a lot of time not saying very much. He covers much of the ground of the other friends while supposedly saying something new. His third function that I think is really important and perhaps the most important is he is a break between Job's challenge and God's answer. I think there would have been It it would be very, very different if Job had kept saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, God, you need to speak up. And then God had answered him immediately as though, you know, Job had rung a bell or pushed a buzzer and God responds. And instead we have these six chapters in which God is still silent. Finally, God will speak. But I think it's good for us to know that God takes the initiative. We cannot force our will on him to say, you must answer me and you must answer me now. And so these chapters give us space between Job's protest of his innocence and his demand that God answer him and God's speaking. God will not be forced into a quick reply, no matter how intense Job's pleas are. God will act in his own time. He is not at our beck and call. And I think that Elihu's speeches, all six chapters of them, their four speeches, give us a, they give us the opportunity to pause and realize that God is free. God will do what he wants, when he wants. We cannot sort of yank his chain and get him to respond. And yet, in another sense, a function is that Elihu prepares us To hear what God has to say, Elihu has some important things to say. We may overlook that. He is the bridge between Job's protest and God's answer. That Elihu is important and what he has to say is important, I think, is seen in the fact that he has four specific speeches, four different speeches, whereas the friends, Um, Eliphaz, Bildad had three each and Zophar only had two. So if you're just doing the math of it Elihu says more and he's not interrupted. There's no response from Job. He goes on for six chapters. In chapter 32 he is introduced to the reader and then he sort of introduces himself to those who are listening um, why he thinks he should speak. If you look at the first five verses of chapter 32, Job 32 verses 1 through 5. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barachel the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job Because they were older than he But when he saw the three men Had nothing more to say His anger was aroused Since Elihu is not mentioned In the early chapters In the prologue Before we have these these speeches Back and forth between Job And his friends uh, We are now introduced to him And we are told uh, In this transition We are told two things First of all that the three friends Have stopped answering Job Or responding to him and the reason for this is that Job sees himself as righteous. In his own eyes, he has done nothing wrong and that he is righteous. And the chasm has gotten wider. And I think we get a sense of this in that in these five verses, the friend, uh, these men are referred to as friends once. But the other time they're referred to as these men. So uh, one might say that the, whatever friendship existed between Job and these men is now gone. And it is into this chasm that Elihu steps forward. We're told several things about him. Elihu, by the way, his name means God, or he is my God. His heritage is, uh, his father is Barakel, which means God has blessed. His tribe is Buzz in uh, Genesis 22. Buzz is the brother of Uz, who was the nephew of Abraham. His clan Ram This is a a common name in the Old Testament, so it's hard to pin it down. But what we see is that Elihu comes from the line of Abraham. His name, as well as that of his father, identifies him as a faithful worshiper of God. With the other three friends, we, we sort of assume that they worship the true God, but they do not seem to be of the line of Abraham. So he brings a heritage that the three friends lack. This is someone who is in the line, it's related to Abraham. But he also brings with him his youth, and this is dealt with by Elihu himself. Um, we're told in verse 4 that he didn't speak up because he was young. He's waiting for those older than himself to speak. Um, it's been suggested that part of the reason that we're told about his lineage is because of the fact that he is young, because otherwise it's like, who is this young guy? Why does he have any right to speak? What gives him the right to say what he has to think? We're told of his heritage, we're told of his youth. We're also told of his anger. He is quite angry. In verses two to five, there are four references to his anger. He's angry because the whole dialogue between Job and his friends been argued badly on both sides. Because Job has held on to his innocence and, in a sense, argued for himself rather than for God. Because the three friends have failed to adequately answer Job. Because in verse 5 they have nothing more to say. and So Elihu is this angry young man. Youthful rage is not without value. It can, in fact, serve as an important challenge, a check, a balance to the prevailing thinking of a particular time. You know, the young Turks, everyone's like, oh, just be quiet, you young whippersnappers. Uh, Sometimes they have something of value to say. This is certainly the case with Elihu. The young can often see clearly through their anger, but they don't see the whole picture. And that oftentimes is why they are told to be quiet. They don't, you know, you don't see the whole thing. You only see what you know. but they have something of value to say. Do you remember the story where the emperor, the story that the emperor has no clothes, that the emperor demands his tailors do the impossible, and so they create basically nothing, this invisible thing. And as the emperor goes out and shows his new clothes, quote unquote, uh, all the adults are like, oh, wonderful. And finally, a little girl says, he's not wearing anything. The emperor has no clothes. It's the young person who sees through to the truth of things. I remember when I was in graduate school being told in a seminar once, not myself, but all of us, um, that we were in fact at the shark stage. That's always moving and just sort of devouring everything in our path. We were merciless in our critique. um, And interestingly enough, we critique work of those who knew far more than we did Um, who had done far more research and work than we had done, our criticisms weren't necessarily wrong, because no one is perfect in their research and in their writing, and so we would sort of pick them apart and fail to appreciate that, in fact, on on the whole, they had done some pretty good work. The young have youth on their side. They have enthusiasm. They have passion. This is what we get from Elihu. He has four speeches. We'll look at the first one today. The first is that God instructs a person through affliction, that God governs the world without exception. The third speech is that God cannot be put under obligation either by our sins or our righteous acts. You may remember that Eliphaz was saying that God really is not concerned about the human race unless you do something wrong. And then he gets involved. And Elihu says this is not the case. And then, in the last chapter, God disciplines those who are in jeopardy. But before he begins to give his position, he begins with an explanation regarding his approach to the matter. Look if you would at verses 6 through 10 of chapter 32. So Elihu, son of Barakel the Buzite said, I am young in years, and you are old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is in the spirit of a man, the breath of the Almighty, that gives him understanding. It's not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. Therefore I say, listen to me. I too will tell you what I know. Elihu keeping with protocol. You let those who are older go first. He's younger than the rest of them. He's been listening carefully. And while they have argued the whole issue of why is Job suffering, he senses that they've sort of missed something really important. And that is, what is the source of authority? Who is the source of wisdom? It could be argued that the young are more sensitive to the issue of authority. They're in the stage when they're trying to be independent, find out their own identity. And so they test, they push back against authority and authority figures. If lines of authority are too rigid or too lax, there may in fact be rebellion. So Elihu is is being very careful as a young, angry man what he is going to say. He's been respectful. He said, I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But now it's time for him to speak. Because age is not the source of wisdom. One may in fact become wiser as one gets older, but that is not necessarily the source of wisdom. Certainly not the source of authority. Elihu is indirectly challenging the three friends. You may remember that Eliphaz had argued that he had argued from experience. Okay, He had had personal revelation. An angel had gone over, a spirit had gone over his face in the night. Bildad had argued from tradition and Zophar from common sense. Um, well, Elihu is like, Wisdom does not only reside with the great or the aged. Um, Not only those who are old understand what is right. The basis of wisdom is the spirit in a man. And where does this spirit, where does this breath come from? It comes from the Almighty. In the New Testament, we, we hear this called inspiration. When Paul tells Timothy that all scripture is God breathed, that is inspired. It's another way of saying it is the breath of the Almighty. And the question comes up, is Elihu saying that he is inspired? That God has given him wisdom that he has not given to the others? Um, On some level, yeah, that's, that's exactly what he's doing. Because he's a young man and he's now facing these older men, Job and the three friends. What would be his basis to claim any type of authority? He is confident of one thing, that the old men in this story have really made a mess of things. They have not solved the problem. They have not come up with an answer. And the fact that they are great, the fact that they are aged, that they're elderly, that hasn't helped them at all. So he says, therefore I say, listen to me, I too will tell you what I know. And then he lays out something that should have been done at the beginning of all of this, sort of the basis for communication. And the answer is to be open, not prejudging the situation. Look, if you would, at verses 11, 12, and 13. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you has answered his arguments. Do not say we have found wisdom that God refute him, not man. Elihu wants them to listen to him because he has earned the right to speak because he has listened. He has been listening. And the implication is that they haven't been listening. And in fact, that's what Job told them um, you know, several times. He's like, you guys aren't listening to me. Job speaks, but what they hear is very different than what Job said because they're not listening. They're already preparing. And, I mean, don't you do that? Haven't you seen people do that? That in an argument or in a discussion, you're not listening to the other person carefully. You're already preparing your rebuttal in your mind. Elihu's been sitting on the sidelines. He's listened to everything that's been said. He is now in a position to begin to give an answer. Principles of good listening are that, first of all, you let other people speak first. Verse number 11. Bad conversation is marked by everyone speaking at the same time or speaking past each other. Job's opening cry of anguish, he opened himself up to attack. And Eliphaz and the friends, rather than sort of taking to heart what Job had said, immediately go on the offensive to respond to what Job had said. Another principle of good listening is that you follow the thinking of the speaker to the end. You let them finish what they're saying. Don't interrupt. Let them finish. Get to the end before you begin to speak. I think a major fault of a bad listener is that they hear the first part and conclude that they know what the last part is and so they begin to jump in and make their argument. A good listener doesn't interrupt. I waited while you spoke, Elihu tells them. While you were searching for words, I gave you my full attention. Listening, by the way, is hard work. In an interview, you can find it on YouTube, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, several years ago during the LA Festival of Books, uh, was interviewed by Kenneth Turan. And one of the things that Malcolm said about interviewing people, he said, listening is really hard work, you know, that you you assume you interview someone and you just listen and you write down whatever they say, but listening is really hard work. And I would say, if you do it correctly, yes, it is. It's quite demanding. And Elihu has listened, he's listened to all four men, both sides of the argument. He, He didn't interrupt, he didn't raise his hand and say, point of order. He listened to what they said till they got to the end of their speeches. You may remember the last time Job spoke, what is the last verse? The words of Job have come to an end. Everyone's done and now Elihu feels like he can speak. Uh, The three friends at this point might be somewhat uncomfortable because basically Elihu is pointed the finger at them and said you guys have not been good listeners Job said this earlier in chapter 13 if only you would be altogether silent for you that would be wisdom hear now my argument listen to my the plea of my lips Elihu has listened and now he will speak now we come to verses 14 through 20 And here, I would say that Elihu points to passion rather than detachment. It's like, I'm going to be objective about this. I'm going to stand back. That's what the friends have done and make the argument. But if you really care about Job, you should have been listening to him. You should have been listening very carefully. Look at verse 14. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. They are dismayed and have no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now that they are silent, now that they stand there with no reply? I, too, will have my say. I, too, will tell what I know. For I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. So I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. As I said, he kept silent through all of this, and now he just can't anymore. Now he has to speak. One author has written about this passage that in contrast to the sterile, one might even say antiseptic, um, detachment of the three friends, Elihu feels very deeply. He is very passionate about this. And because of that, he has to say something. He's like wine that is fermenting in a wineskin, and it's ready to burst because of the gases that have built up, and he has to say something. One could say about Elihu that he wasn't a theologian. He was a human being. And so he speaks. And then in verses 21 and 22, he speaks of equality, not partiality. Let's read it. I will show partiality to no one, nor will I flatter any man, for if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. Elihu is not taking sides, as I've said before, sort of a pox on all your houses because of what they have said. He is not being partial. Okay, he's gonna, not going to use flattery. He's not going to try to get the old three friends on his side or get Job on his side. He, in fact, is going to say what he thinks he will speak in the spirit he will speak openly passionately and with without partiality even if he adds nothing new to the conversation he creates a climate in which God will soon speak in chapter 38 he will come and speak to Job I think it is Elihu who is setting the stage for what we will hear from God. So now we come to chapter thirty-three, and it begins with sort of um, setting the groundwork. You know, sort of here, here's the foundation of what he's going to say. This is what principled communication is all about. Verse one. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I'm about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue My words come from an upright heart My lips sincerely speak what I know The Spirit of God has made me The breath of the Almighty gives me life Answer me then if you can Prepare yourself and confront me I am just like you before God I too have been taken from clay No fear of me should alarm you Nor should my hand be heavy upon you Chapter 32 is an introduction. Now, Elihu addresses Job directly. Um, I think this is very different, if you think about it, from what we've heard from the three friends. Because in some ways, they seem to be speaking, I don't know if there's an audience there, but they don't seem to be addressing, well, you, you will remember that a number of times, Job says, I wish you would look at me. You know, when you're talking to me, look at me. And they don't seem to be doing that. They're talking in abstractions. And Elihu starts out and says, listen, Job, listen to my words. So he is addressing him directly. Some people are a bit upset about this because he addresses an older man, Job, by his name. There's no term of respect or no title. Elihu is younger. He should know better. In many cultures in the world, um, you can never address an older person simply by their name. There has to be some title or term of respect, Um, but Elihu's already told those listening that he's not going to show partiality. So he's not going to put Job up and say, Mr. Job, or Sir Job, or whatever. Um, He's going to address him as another human being. And he insists that Job listen to every word which sounds a bit arrogant. I mean, why, why should Job listen to this young man? But consider what we saw in chapter 32 about communication. You need to listen. You not interrupt. Listen to every word the person is saying until they are finished speaking. And now that Elihu has claimed to have the breath of the Almighty, giving him wisdom as to what he should say, then yeah, Job should in fact listen. Elihu does claim uprightness of heart, and he is sincere. But all of these go to the point that Elihu is trying to make to Job. I am a human being just as you are, Job. God made us both. So now Elihu puts into practice what he said about dialogue with integrity. He has listened, now he speaks. And he wants Job to listen. And he will not be biased. He will not show partiality. He will speak the truth. Now we come to the first speech. Everything has been preliminary. This is who Elihu is. Then he addresses Job with a preliminary. Now he jumps in. First of all, he repeats Job's case. Okay? This is what you've been saying. Verses 8 through 11. But you have said in my hearing... I heard the very words, I am pure and without sin. I am clean and free from guilt. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. Unlike the three friends, Elihu takes Job head on. And he begins by paraphrasing Job's complaint. That God has punished Job without cause. He has treated him like an enemy. He has held him captive. He has stalked his footsteps. Job, this is what you said. Just a side note. um, In one of the Mars Hill uh, volumes, they talked about a college, I think it's back east, that they have a rule, they have debate teams, that, uh, let's say, Team A will state their position. Then, Team B gets to speak, but before they can speak, they must say what Team A's position is. And if Team A is not happy with it, they, you have, no, you're, don't create a straw man. Don't give a false narrative. Don't twist what we've said. You must, in fact, say what we have said. And once you've done that, then you can make the rebuttal. That's what Elihu is doing here. It's like, Job, this is what you've said. I've been listening. I've listened to every word, and this is what you've said. Let me give my response, beginning in verse 12. But I tell you, in this you are not right, for God is greater than man. Why do you complain to him that he answers none of man's words? For God does speak, now one way, now another, though man may not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn man from wrongdoing and keep him from pride, to preserve his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Or a man may be chastened on a bed of pain with, cons- with constant distress in his bones so that his very being finds food repulsive and his soul loathes his, the choicest meal. His flesh wastes away to nothing, and his bones once hidden now stick out. His soul draws near to the pit, and his life to the messengers of death. Immediately, Elihu tells Job, in this you are not right. On this issue, you're not right. Now, this is something really important for us to understand. Elihu, young, angry man, okay, He is able to separate the issue from the person, okay? And this is an important distinction. Oftentimes, when people are arguing, rather than responding to one another, they begin to attack each other personally. Um, uh, Jordan Peterson, for example, has said oftentimes that when people respond to him, they're not really responding, they're simply slurring him. Like, that's not an answer, that's a slur. And if Elihu wanted, he'd be wrong, he could say, Job, you're a jerk, you're a dirtbag, what's wrong with you? But instead, he is not attacking Job, but rather his position. He's able to do that. I I think there's an important lesson to learn there. Job's friends had condemned his person as wicked. Job, you are a wicked man. That's what his friends say. Elihu doesn't say that. Elihu says, in this you are wrong. You're not right in doing what you've, what you've said. You've been wrong. He does not, it's not an ad hominem attack. He doesn't attack the man. He's telling Job that we cannot remake God in our own image. Remake him into someone who must meet our standards. A lot of people do that. They see God is unjust. God is unfair. God is cruel. Because they have reshaped him into an image that they imagine. Job, in some sense, has done this. And Elijah says, no, you can't do this. I would argue that we are all, at different points in our lives, guilty of this. Some have called it Projection. But it's more than that Because if God does really exist He is there The question is who is he And why hasn't he done something Years ago A book was published entitled Your God is too small In which the author argued That people have a small view of God In some measure this is what Job is guilty of He has reduced God To uh, uh, someone that must answer him for all the difficulties Job has faced Not only that Job has set the ground rules okay? God you and I are going to talk And these are the rules of our dialogue Of our conversation um, In this you are not right Elihu tells him In times of distress it isn't unusual For us to want God to answer us And to answer us now In the midst of difficulty, we want answers and we want them immediately. Elihu says, God, in fact, is speaking. He speaks in different ways dreams and visions. He speaks in our ears while we're sleeping and suffering. And he does this to prevent us from going astray. Now, some would argue at this point that uh, Elihu has added something new. The friends spoke of suffering as having a divine purpose. I'm sorry. That Elihu hasn't added anything new. That the friends have said. Yes, yes, Job. Suffering has a divine purpose. But he says something quite different from the friends. And that is that suffering can in fact have a creative purpose. Not simply a destructive purpose. And if you'll bear with me. i Harken back to the sermon last week and the week before. The difference between a biblical view of history and reality is that it has a purpose. It has purpose. And suffering, in fact, can have a creative purpose. Pain can have a creative purpose. Think of a woman in labor who gives birth to a child. Severe pain. Great pain, but it is endured and it is forgotten because it has a creative purpose. On the other hand, if you have kidney stones, they have no creative purpose and one's endurance is limited and the memory lingers. (laughs) Trust me, you remember the pain, but a woman we're told she gives birth and because of the joy of a child the pain is forgotten. Creative, creative use of pain, destructive use of pain. And Elihu believes that God speaking, whether in dreams or opening up our ears or in suffering, can have a creative purpose. It isn't just, oh, you've messed up big time and that's why you're suffering. It can, in fact, have a creative purpose. It can turn us from what we are doing that is wrong, from preserving us from Going into the pit for doing something terribly destructive can have the purpose of correcting us. We have to be really careful here, though. We have to be very careful here when we speak of suffering. As one author puts it, it is very difficult to get this right. In Luke 13, Jesus spoke of two incidents that had happened recently in his time. The one was uh, an incident in which Pilate, Pontius Pilate, had massacred certain Galileans and he had, quote, mixed their blood with their sacrifices. The other incident was in the town of Siloam in which people were building a tower and the tower fell and 18 people were crushed to death. And Jesus rejects a cause and effect answer for this. You know, he asks, do you think that these men, these Galileans that were massacred, these 18 people in Siloam who died, you think they're more wicked than other people? So you think that's why that happened to them? In John chapter 9, they come up, uh, Jesus and his disciples come on a blind man. And the disciples ask him, Why is he blind? Is it because his parents sinned or because he sinned? Jesus again, again rejects a causal link. We should not confuse cause with relationship or, if you wish, with purpose. There can be a relationship between suffering and learning, growing and maturing. Sometimes we need to be corrected. And when we do, it's for our own good, but the correction may in fact be difficult and painful. But not all suffering is corrective in nature, but it is all creative in purpose, and we need to remember that. If a person is suffering, they may grow, they may develop, they may learn. Not because of the suffering, but because of their response to the suffering. It is our response to suffering. That I think it is in that that we grow and we mature as God's people. So instead of speaking of creative suffering, as I've just been doing, perhaps we should speak of creative responses to suffering. Not necessarily asking God, what is your purpose here? He may or may not reveal that to us. But respond in faith to know that God, in fact, knows what's going on. It may take a long time. In an age of instant this and that, we may reject this notion. But in fact, it may take a while. It is unwise to tell someone at the beginning of their suffering, God is using this pain to speak to you. God is trying to teach you something. God may be doing that. He may be seeking to preserve a person. But who are we to say? We don't know. I think that at the beginning of the dialogues between Job and his friends, Job was not ready to listen. Job was not ready to understand. But now that his friends have shut up, now that Job has stopped talking, this young whippersnapper comes along. And I think he is preparing the ground so that when God does speak, Job is finally ready to hear him. Now, verses 23 through 30. Yet if there is an angel on his side as a mediator, one out of a thousand, to tell a man what is right for him, to be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom for him. Then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor with him. He he sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to his righteous state. Then he comes to men and says, I sinned. And perverted what was right But I did not get what I deserved He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit And I will live to enjoy the light God does all these things to a man Twice, even three times To turn back his soul from the pit That the light of life may shine on him And what to me is a difficult part of Elihu's speeches Elihu appears to argue for the existence of an angel who is a mediator one out of a thousand one to tell a man what is right for him one who intervenes with the angel of death, one who has found a ransom for him several things need to be kept in mind here Um, Eliphaz had insisted that no one is holy there is no holy angel if you wish to whom Job could turn for help Job, on the other hand, has argued that there is an advocate in heaven, a redeemer. I know that my redeemer lives. Here Elihu identifies the redeemer, the angel, one in a thousand. We know who this is. It's the Lord Jesus. Did Elihu know? Probably not, I'd have to say. But he did speak with the breath of the almighty Perhaps he had insight that others did not I think his point is this It's one we shouldn't try to miss While trying to figure out what he did or didn't know It is this Suffering is not a solitary matter We are not alone In our suffering And we need to embrace this truth I think when we suffer We feel most alone But the reality is We are not alone The Lord Jesus has sent the comforter Someone to walk alongside us Even in our suffering Elihu ends this first speech With a call to Job To pay attention and listen up To speak up if he has anything to say. If not, Elihu is going to keep on talking. And the Lord willing, we will see this next Sunday as we go on to chapter 34. There's a lot here. I recognize that. But I think one of the things that stands out to me is what Elihu has to say about communication. That in fact, we are to listen rather than the strike first principle that we find in the world today, we are to listen and listen till someone is finished talking. And then, by God's grace, answer them graciously. Elihu, this angry young man, and he is angry. (laughs) He's been listening to these four old guys go on and on. But he listened. He listened. And when it was his time to speak, he's like, listen, I'm younger than the rest of you guys, but I have the Spirit of the Almighty. Wisdom comes from God, and we need to recognize that. And then the other thing is on suffering. And I I think uh, Elihu does a, a wonderful thing here in contrast to the three friends. For them, suffering is always because you've done something wrong. It's cause and effect. Elihu doesn't do cause and effect. He does purpose. There is a purpose in our suffering. God knows what's going on. He is intimately involved in every aspect of our being. We should not... See suffering as being creative, but rather by God's grace, our responses as being creative. That as God works in our lives, we respond in faith. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this young, angry man, Elihu who in fact did listen carefully, who waited until everyone else was finished speaking, and rather than claiming some authority because of age, he looked to you, the breath of the Almighty. I thank you for the things that he had to say and what we can learn from them. By your spirit, may you give us understanding. Come to appreciate the truths that were spoken. You do care about us. You have sent a mediator. You have sent someone to be a ransom for us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. He's coming, even now interceding for us, that he has made all of this possible. There are times when we want answers from you, and we want them immediately. But in your wisdom and in your grace, Sometimes you hold off, you are silent. Help us to trust you, to know that you love us and you care about us. And while it may not seem to be the case, you are doing what is best for us. I thank you for this first day of a new week what it will bring, we do not know, but you do. That we begin it in your presence, worshiping you. Prepare us, prepare our hearts as we go out into the world at large. May your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.